Go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 11. We're in verse 17. And 4th of July is a lot of fun. Hebrews 11, verse 17. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you so much for the opportunity to come and spend time in your word. And Lord, we thank you that you're trustworthy. We ask that you'd speak to us afresh tonight uh, as we go through the second half of Hebrews chapter 11. And give us ears to hear and hearts to understand that we could grow in faith that you would reveal those areas of our lives where we're not trusting you. So God, we wait upon you. We thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Yesterday, as it was uh, 4th of July, uh, we went to the Monument Parade with some friends and and took it in. And also at the beginning of the parade, uh, they have the opportunity for kids to uh, ride their bikes and walk kind of along the parade route while everybody's lined up there in in Monument. So a couple of our younger kids were with their friends and uh, my older daughter and I were were walking along and kind of keeping an eye on the younger ones and talking with her friends. And all of a sudden, I, I looked over to my right, and there was a gal. I couldn't uh, totally peg her age. I'd say she was probably somewhere between uh, 8, 9, maybe 10 or 11, some, somewhere in there. And her head was shaved. She was clearly uh, going through chemo. She was in a wheelchair, and uh, her, her leg was propped up, and her mom was uh, pushing her in the wheelchair. And then everybody started to cheer. Everybody just started to stand up and, and cheer for her. And she was throwing out uh, candy. And I was really moved by that. You know, here's my four kids. They're healthy and active and having fun with their friends and on their bikes and just having a 4th fourth, fourth of July. And, and you could see the weight on this girl. You know, you could tell it was serious. Like it was, it was life-threatening. You could see the weight upon her, her mom and the courage for her mom uh, and and her to participate in the monument parade and be an encouragement uh, to others. And I was really, really blessed. And it was really, really sobering. And that's what I find in Hebrews chapter 11, is the the Bible describes it as a great cloud of witnesses. In in chapter 12, verse 1, it says, we're surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses. We really have the opportunity to take a moment and realize there's people that have gone before us and have kept the faith, who've walked in trusting in Christ. And there's people that are surrounding us, and their life is a testimony of faith. Their, Their life really gives us this message that it can be done. So tonight is the Examples of Faith Part 2. It's, it's a, a tremendous section of Scripture, the second half of Hebrews chapter 11. We left off in verse uh, 17. If you remember, what's the definition of faith from the Scripture? From verse 1 of Hebrews 11, it says, Now faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. The, the substance of things that you hope for And the evidence of things not seen. And the people's lives that we're studying is they were moved by faith. As they trusted God, as they believed God, and what God was telling them to do, then they responded with action. Each of that we see in Hebrews chapter 11, there's steps of faith, there's actions of faith that are involved. 
And I believe that God, in the middle of this summer, for this group that comes on Wednesday night, he's wanting to exhort us in faith. He's wanting to grow us in faith, where we would trust him more, trust his word more, and respond in obedience. So we begin with Abraham in verse 17. It says, By faith Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promise offered up his only begotten son. Genesis chapter 2. Quite a journey for Abraham and Sarah to get to this point. They were never able to have kids. God in their old age, Abraham being 100 years old, Abraham being, or Sarah, excuse me, his wife being 90 years old, blesses them with Isaac, the promised child. God speaks to Abraham and says, I want you to go sacrifice your son on a place, a location that I will show you. And Abraham, amazingly, he responds in obedience to God, and he's willing to go and offer his son Isaac upon the altar. And notice here what it says in verse 17, he was tested. God tested Abraham. God doesn't tempt us, but he will test us. He'll put us through tests in our lives to reveal where our faith is, where our trust is, where our obedience is. And what does God test Abraham in here by asking for his oldest son to be on the altar? He's asking for what is most valuable to Abraham, his only begotten, this this valued treasure, the fulfilled promise of God. And he's saying, I want what's most important to you upon the altar, sacrificed and surrendered in worship. God is still in the business of doing that, isn't he? There's different times in his, our lives where he'll come and he'll, he'll test us and he'll say, Eric, you declare that I'm number one. I'm going to test that. Will, will you take what's most valuable in your life? Will you put it in my hands? Will you put it upon the altar? And Abraham passes with flying colors. He chooses to obey the Lord. He chooses to walk in obedience. And we see this in the next few verses. In verse 18, of whom it was said, in Isaac your seed shall be called. So through Isaac, very specifically through Isaac, was going to be this fulfilled promise that Abraham would have a multitude of descendants as the stars of the sky. So it seems like what God's asking Abraham to do is in contradiction to his promise. So here's Isaac. He's not married, has no children. There's no fulfillment of this promise with future descendants, but now God's saying, kill your son. How do, how do those two go together? We can begin to feel the tension of this. In verse 19, concluding that God was able to raise him up, even from the dead, from which he also received him in a figurative sense. The word concluded, it means reasoned. It means to calculate or compute. So as Abraham's trying to digest this, he says, okay, God is faithful. I'm calculating that God is faithful, and if he's asking me to kill my son, then I can trust that he's going to raise my son from, from the dead. We know this from Genesis 22, verse 5. And Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey. The lad and I will go yonder and worship, and we will come back to you. Saying, we're going to worship. I'm going to put him on the altar. I'm going to fulfill God's command, but then we're going to come back. Because he believed if he had to kill his son that God was going to raise him from the dead. Now at this point in biblical history, has anybody been risen from the dead? 
No, nobody has been risen from the dead. But Abraham believes that much in the character and the faithfulness of God. Abraham's faith rested with the greatness of God. He believed God's existence. He believed God is faithful to his word. He believed in God's creative power. He had seen God's supernatural work in the womb of Sarah, his wife, and he knew if he had to sacrifice his son, God would raise him from the dead. Now, what's the rest of the story? He puts his son upon the altar. He's getting ready to bring the knife down upon his son. And God says, stop, I want you to stop. And God provided a sacrifice that was caught in the thicket. And all of this is foreshadowing the father giving his son Jesus for the sacrifice of our sin. Now, unfortunately, I've got to mention this in our twisted culture. If you think God is speaking to you to murder your kids, that's not God. You know, if, if you're reading Genesis 22 and you're like, God is testing me. I, I'm saddened by how many times I read the news and I see that a parent has killed their children and then killed themselves and somehow tried to tie God into that. I mean, clearly God stopped Abraham and said, look, don't, don't kill your son. God wants you loving your kids, you know. That's the last thing that God would want you to do. This was a particular point in time where God was dealing with the heart of Abraham to make sure that God was number one in Abraham's life. Now remember, we're, we're not just studying this for a historical lesson on those who lived a life of faith. I believe this has been written for us to teach us about what it means to trust the Lord. Are you being tested by God? Now, Sometimes I think we put everything into that bucket, and that's just the trials of this life. The, the rain falls on the just and the unjust. But sometimes God will uniquely test us. And you'll know if you're being tested by the Lord. And God is revealing our faith to us. And we, and we walk away and go, oh man, my faith's got a lot of room to grow. Or wow, I, I trust God more than I, I realized. God definitely is number one in my life. The blessings that God has given to us, they're best if they're in God's hands. Amen? They're best if we don't hold on to them, but we surrender them to the Lord in worship. So we look in verse 20. It moves on pretty rapidly from one character to the next. By faith, Isaac blessed Jacob and Esau concerning things to come. So Isaac has twin boys. Lord bless him, right? They're wrestling in the womb of who can come out first, and Esau's born first. Literally, Esau in the Hebrew means hairy. So they saw him, and they say, well, name is clear. He's hairy, right? And as you read the Genesis account, he was a very hairy man. Jacob was the younger brother. Jacob tried to usurp his older brother to receive the birthright and also the blessing from his father. He dresses up with his mother's instruction like Esau. He has to go kill an animal and put the animal fur on his arm for his dad to believe that he's Esau. Apparently Esau was so hairy, his arm was like an animal's fur, right? Not very attractive, okay? You guys with me? You here tonight? I mean, this is, that's, that's a lot of hair on his, on his arm. So here goes Jacob, and he does deceive his dad. His dad's getting old, beginning to lose his, his eyesight. It's not the ideal situation. This blessing did not occur 
with a great family relationship. It happens with lying and, and deceiving and dysfunction. But what does Isaac do? He gives the blessing by faith. He offers the prayer of blessing for his boys by faith of things to come. I get encouraged by this. Because is any family situation ideal all the time? No, it's not. How does God move in the midst of family? Parents, as you pray through faith. As you put your hands on your kids in prayer, a prayer of faith and a prayer of blessing that God would, would work in their life. And that's exactly what Isaac does with Jacob and Esau. In verse 21, By faith Jacob, when he was dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph and worshipped, leaning on the top of his staff. The sons of Joseph. The younger was Manasseh, but Jacob put his right hand upon Manasseh and gave the greater blessing to Manasseh. Joseph tried to correct this, but Jacob said no. He sensed the leading of the Lord that God was going to move in Manasseh's life. And it says, by faith, Jacob prayed a prayer of blessing upon the sons of Joseph. He'd modeled what he'd received from his father, Isaac. The life of Jacob is so colorful. If you're looking for a great study for the summer, read through the book of Genesis. Go deeper into these people's lives, Genesis and, and Exodus. Jacob went through the majority of his life being a manipulator, trying to use his own strengths, his own abilities to accomplish the promises of God. That is a, an exhausting, terrible place to be. We fast forward in his life. He's deceived his brother. He has to flee from Esau because Esau wants to try to kill him. And he's finally coming back. And as this man who's tried to be self-made God confronts him and wrestles with him all night. And it says that God knocked his hip out of joint, changed his name from Jacob to Israel. And that's where we get the name Israel for the nation of Israel. His 12 sons became the 12 tribes of, of Israel. God altered his character there. This is when he became a broken man. Instead of a self-made man, or man who could manipulate situations to his benefit. He was broken by God. And we find here in verse 21, it says that he was leaning on his staff. The Genesis account tells us from that moment on, he walked with a limp. He had been marked by God. He had pain in his body where God set him straight, if you would. Now notice what he had learned to do with this pain, with this limp is that he leaned upon his staff and he worshipped. We see Jacob the best in his older years because he'd been broken by God. God allowed the pain to remain, and instead of fighting it, he surrendered himself to it, and out of weakness, he was made strong. Can you relate to that? Is there a weakness in your life? Is there a way that God has broken you? And so now you're leaning on your staff and you're worshiping God. No longer depending upon our own strengths, our own abilities, trying to make things happen, but resting upon the Lord. And he blesses the sons of Joseph as well. Is there something by faith that could really carry over for praying for our kids? I think so. When you look at these blessings, these prayers of faith, there's a few things that are involved. And the first is there's affection. They would lay their hands upon their children, and they would pray for him. And these are adult children. 
You know, these are, these are children many times that are, are, are much further along in, in their life. As we read of Esau and Jacob, the, these guys are, are men at this point when they're being, receiving the blessing from, from their father. And the father would put his hands upon these grown boys and he would, he would pray for them. So if you're a parent or, or, or a grandparent, you know, lovingly put your hands on your kids. Get, get your hands on your kids. Give them affection and, and pray for them. There, there's been a, a study that has shown for women that have had four or more kids out of wedlock and done a study of what was missing in their life, and it wasn't education or opportunity. It was a loving father or grandfather that gave them affection. So dads, for your daughters, it's huge. I believe also for your sons as well to give them affection. Moms, man, give your kids affection. And that can be expressed in prayer. It's amazingly powerful to place your hand on them in affection and pray for them. There's also affirmation in these prayers to to affirm them, to affirm that they're a gift from God and created in in God's image. So we put our hands on our kids and we, we pray for them. And we give affirmation, but also in these blessings was future guidance. Future guidance. You see things in your kids that are God-given abilities and strengths, and you want to speak to those. You want to pray for those things in their life. And, and, and encourage them. That's part of the blessing. You know, the, the blessing is speaking to God, but it, it's also speaking to them. And go, hey, you know what? I've noticed you're really, really creative. I think that God is going to use that in your life. I've noticed you're really organized. Not too many people are, are organized the way that you're organized. I think, I think that's a real gift from, from God, and, and you're just beginning to speak f- future direction to this. One of the ways I think also that the blessing is given is by just sharing pure joy over a child, you know? Why do, why do kids love it when you wrestle with them? Why do kids love it when you, when you tickle them? Why do kids love it when you go out and you have a good time with them? Because you are blessing them with a smile, you know? When, it, when a kid's just being pounded by their parent in a loving way, right? And they're like, just give me more. They're just, they're just soaking it up. What, what is that? You're giving them the blessing, you know? So it's the spiritual aspect of, of praying for them and praying the blessing over them. But it's also the practical as well as, man, a blessing is given in a smile. A blessing is given in laughter. A blessing is, is getting them by getting them down on the ground and, you know, rubbing their heads and, and tickling them and all those kinds of things. All of that is, is the blessing, and you can see the difference that it made. Of all of the things in Isaac's life and of, of Jacob's life, God mentions the blessing, the prayer of faith that was passed on to the next generation. That's, that's also really encouraging, isn't it? You're like, that's something I can do. I can pray for my kids. I can affirm them and, and give them that blessing. So we move to Joseph. I'm feeling like I'm not going to make it through this chapter. Like, it's like, I don't know if you guys are looking at your watch, but I'm looking at my watch, and I'm not sure we're going to make it. So verse 22. By faith, Joseph, when he was dying, made mention of the departure of the children of Israel and gave instructions concerning his bones. Joseph's life was an expression of faith, of trust in the Lord and perseverance. What's mentioned about his life is when he's dying, he's dying in Egypt. 
Jacob and his brothers and the whole family is now in Egypt. And he says, when we depart, I want you to make sure to take my bones because I want to be buried in the promised land that God has given to us. And God marks that for the faith of Joseph, that he was looking to the future things and he was confident of God's promises. He believed God's promises that God was going to give them their own land. We focus in on Moses for the next few verses. By faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden three months by his parents because they saw he was a beautiful child. And they were not afraid of the king's command. Exodus 6, verse 20. The parents are Amram and Jochebed. During a tough time where the Pharaoh was ordering for all of the boys to be killed as they were born. And here... Moses' parents didn't follow Pharaoh's orders. They followed the orders of God because they saw that their child was beautiful, was created in God's image. They believed that God had a promise for this child. And they hid him for three months. And it says here, and they were not afraid of the king's commands. They saw Moses through the eyes of faith. Moses is a game changer for the nation of Israel. We live in a time where it's intimidating to even have kids. Some of you may be thinking and praying about having kids, and that's something to think through and pray through, married couples. And I believe you have to see it through the eyes of faith. Because if you only see it through the eyes of culture, you may conclude that it's not a safe time to have kids. But what if God wants to give you Moses and he wants to raise up Moses to change the landscape of people's hearts for all of eternity? That's going to take some faith. What if the people of God stopped having kids at some point in history? There dies the movement of God. This was not a safe time to get pregnant. This wasn't a responsible time to get pregnant. Don't they know how to avoid this, right? You know, isn't there some way around them getting pregnant? I mean, they got pregnant. And then odds are they had a boy. And they chose to go through this whole process by faith and to believe that God was bigger than Pharaoh and his death sentence that was, was given. And as they chose to, to hide Moses for three months and then put him out in this basket on the Nile River, figuring out his chances on the Nile River were better than in their own home. The Pharaoh's daughter sees him, rescues him, and adopts him as his own child. God moved through their, through their faith. I would encourage us as parents, see your kids, kids in general, and specifically your children or future children through the eyes of faith, knowing that they're beautiful. They're created in God's image for God's purposes, for God to do his mighty works through. Verse 24, by faith, Moses, when he became of age, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. Moses was the lawgiver. He was the historian, the deliverer. The Bible calls him the meekest man on the face of the earth. But more than anything else, he walked by faith. By faith, Moses, when he became of age, he refused to be called the Pharaoh's daughter. He's choosing humility. You know, he's refusing this title of royalty. I'm going to be known as the Pharaoh's daughter. Instead, 
he associated himself with the people of God. Verse 25, choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin. He says, I'm not going to associate as Pharaoh's daughter. I'm not choosing this life of privilege. I'm choosing God's people. I'm choosing suffering. I'm choosing affliction. And I'm going to pass on the pleasures of sin because I know that it is temporary. We don't fully understand this because we don't have a lot of persecution in the United States of America. But for many people, for them to receive Christ as their Savior and associate with the church, associate with God's people, it means suffering. It means persecution. They're choosing suffering. That, that day could come for us as well, where we say, because I trust Christ for, for my salvation, because I believe the Bible, and I'm going to hold to it, and I'm going to associate with God's people, it could mean suffering in our lives. And that's what Moses chose. And he has the wisdom here to realize that there is pleasure in sin, but it's passing. Don't let anybody tell you that sin's not fun, okay? Sin is fun. There is pleasure in sin for a season. But with every kick, there's a kick back. It's like releasing a wrecking ball onto our lives. And we all know this, don't we? Right? There's that moment of pleasure in sin, but then there's the consequences and there's the devastation that comes with sin. Moses, he developed an eternal perspective, and he started making decisions off of that eternal perspective. In verse 26, he esteemed the reproaches of Christ greater than the riches, greater riches than the treasures in Egypt, for he looked to the reward. Amazing. This is associated with Christ, the coming Messiah. And choosing to have the reproach of Christ... Then the riches that are in Egypt. Why did he do that? Because he looked to the reward. Now, faith is the substance of things hoped for. He was hoping for eternity. He was hoping for eternal life. There's several scriptures that encourage us in this regard. Romans 8 verse 18 says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. So consider that for just a moment. Moses is looking forward to heaven, and he's saying, I don't care about the riches of Egypt. So we look forward to the glory that's going to be revealed in us, and it can't even compare to the sufferings that we go through. This is 2 Corinthians 4, verse 16. Therefore we do not lose heart, even though our outwardly, outward man is perishing. Can I get an amen? I mean, the outward man is perishing. Yet the inward man is being renewed day by day for our light affliction, which is for a moment is working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. We do not look at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporary, but the things which are not seen are eternal. Sixty seconds in heaven would produce such faith. <laughs> Fifteen seconds of a view of Christ, 15 seconds of the angelic host, 15 seconds of heaven's architecture, 15 seconds to behold family members that are already glorified. It would only take 60 seconds, right? But if we could get just a glimpse of eternity, we'd say, I'll pass on sin. I'll pass on the riches of this life. I'm going to choose following Christ, even though it means affliction and reproach. In verse 27, by faith he forsook Egypt, not fearing the wrath of the king, for he endured 
as seeing him who is invisible. So Moses in his heart had forsaken, forsaken Egypt and he didn't fear the wrath of the king either. And he's seeing him who is invisible. His faith is being expressed here. By faith he kept the Passover and the sprinkling of the blood, lest he who destroyed the firstborn should touch him. Remember, Hebrews 11 gives us all the highlights of these people's lives. When we read of them in the Old Testament account, we see their sin and their weakness. There's a 40-year gap of what we've just read in Hebrews 11. What happened? Moses sees a, an Egyptian, and he's brutalizing one of the Hebrew slaves. He sticks up for the slave, and he kills the Egyptian. And the scripture tells us he had to look both ways before he killed the Egyptian. So I think there was some righteous anger there, but he stepped too far. He, he went too far, didn't he? So he had to flee in the wilderness. And he was in the wilderness for 40 years where nothing was happening. Probably all those dreams and aspirations of God using him to deliver his people were gone. But then God appeared to him through the burning bush and called him to go back to Egypt. Comes back to Pharaoh and he says, let my people go. All of these plagues take place. And the last of the plagues was the Passover. The blood of the lamb applied to the door of each Hebrew home so that judgment passed over. So the oldest wasn't killed, but the oldest of all the Egyptians was, was killed. And that led to then Pharaoh's finally saying, all right, I will let you go, and you can, you can leave. And this leads to verse 20, 29. By faith they passed through the Red Sea as by dry land, whereas the Egyptians attempted to do so were drowned. The Red Sea's in front of them, Pharaoh and his armies behind him. God says, take your staff, put it onto the water, the water parts, and by faith, Abraham, or Moses, excuse me, crosses the Red Sea on dry ground. When God does stuff, he does it well, right? You don't even need to get your shoes muddy, right? It's going to be dry ground. And here, the Egyptians, they think, well, it worked for them, it'll work for us too, but they didn't have faith in God. They didn't have trust in God. So Pharaoh and his army is drowned in the Red Sea. And, and this is what God gives us as a highlight of Moses' life, of trusting the Lord, of walking by faith, of believing that God could bring deliverance. In verse 30, I love this, by faith the walls of Jericho fell down after they were encircled for seven days. You guys doing okay? Still with me? The, this now fast forwards us to Joshua. And the generation that was born in the wilderness. First generation didn't believe that God could defeat the giants except for Joshua and Caleb. So this is Joshua, Caleb, and the second generation. God says, first thing that I'm going to do to defeat the Canaanites in the promised land is to take Jericho. Jericho was in the very central part of the country. Thick walls, two sets of walls. God says, this is the first place that I'm going to bring victory. I want you to walk around the city one time a day. On the seventh day, I want you to go around seven times. Then I want you to yell and blow the shofar, the ram's horn, and I'm going to crush these walls. Now, we're familiar with the story. We're like, that sounds good. That sounds like a good plan. But if you're the ones that are having to do this, you're like, 
this sounds like a very bad plan. No walls have ever been crushed by us walking around them and then yelling real loud, right? This makes us very vulnerable to the attack of, of the enemy. But God had spoken to them. So they chose to obey. And they walk around day one. This is a long week. You know what I'm saying? Walk around day two, day three. Now it's day seven. They go around seven times. I wonder if they were keeping track of their steps on their iPhone, right? Like this is how many steps it is around the walls of Jericho. And you can just, you can just feel the anticipation. Maybe wrestling with some doubt. And they get the signal and they yell at the top of their lungs and blow the shofar. And then all of a sudden the walls of Jericho start to fall and God brings a great victory. Do we experience walls in our lives? Can we apply this to our lives? Yeah, we do. Is there, is there a wall between you and an 18-year-old child, a 5-year-old child? Is there a wall between you and your spouse? Is there a wall between you and a close friend? Are you experiencing walls at, at the workplace? Do you know how walls come down? It's not by walking around, and it's not by screaming. They come down by faith through obedience. What do we do? What do we do when we're experiencing those walls in our lives? We should be going to God, saying, God, what do you, what do you want? What's your game plan in this situation? Joshua, as he was looking for what to do at this season, it says that the Lord of hosts, which I believe was, was Jesus coming on the pages of the Old Testament, he comes to Joshua, and Joshua says, are you for us or against us? And you know Christ's response? He's like, neither. <laughs> I'm not on anybody's team. And he says, let's get this straight. I'm in charge here. And then Joshua t- takes off his sandals because it's holy ground and he worships. That's why we believe it's Christ coming onto the pages of the Old Testament. And Joshua and this generation, they were broken before God. They'd seen a whole generation die in the wilderness and they're like, God, we're going to do it your way. So if you say walk around the walls, we're going to walk around the walls. And if you say scream like a crazy man, then I'm going to scream like a crazy man because I trust you. I'm, I'm submitted to you. I'm ready to receive your word by faith and walk in it in obedience. And that's when God brings down the walls. That's when he brings down the walls. Seek him. Seek him in his word. This is how he reveals himself to us. Lord, what do you want me to do in this situation? And if he wants to bring the wall down, he'll bring it down. If he wants the wall to remain, he'll, he'll allow the wall to remain. But the importance, how do walls come down? Through faith and through obedience. And that's what we see with Joshua and the nation of Israel. Verse 31, by faith, the harlot Rahab didn't perish with those who didn't believe when she'd received the spies with peace. The spies came into Jericho. Rahab was a prostitute, and she welcomes them in. She hears what they have to say. She responds in faith. She does just as they they say, and she's saved. The whole city of Jericho had heard of the great works of God, but it was Rahab who responded through faith, who trusted the the words of the spies. She obeyed the instructions that, that she had received. What a great testimony of God's redemption and God's work in Rahab's life. In verse 32, And what more shall I say? 
for time would fail for me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, and Jephthah. I love this because you can almost see the writer of Hebrews running out of time. You know, it's like, I've, I've used up my word quota. So it's like, well, for sake of time, I'll just briefly mention Gideon. And we know Gideon, he wrestled and doubted in faith, but ultimately he walked in faith. And so he's listed as a hero of faith. Barak is classic because he wouldn't go to battle without Deborah. <laughs> Not one of the most manly warrior things to do. Well, babe, I'll, I'll go fight if you'll come with me. But, it, but if you don't come with me, I'm, I'm just not going to go, right? And what does God do? He lists them down as in the hero of faith. He went. And he needed Deborah's help, but he went. Samson, we know Samson. A he-man with a she-weakness, right? What was, what was his problem? It was sexual sin. It plagued him, didn't it? Really robbed him from the potential that God had in his life. But how did he end? He ended in faith. He cried out to God, and he said, God, would you do this one more time? God's like, yeah. Yeah, I will. Pulled down the pillars, and more Philistines died that day than in any day prior for Samson, and God lists him as a hero of faith. Your, your life may be severely damaged because of sin, just like Samson. His eyes were plucked out because of his sin. He was in bondage, literally, as a slave because of his sin. And you're saying, that's what my sin has done for me. And you know what God says? It's not too late. You, you ready to turn to him? You ready to walk in faith? God's a God of redemption. Samson ends on a very strong note, and God puts him in the hall of faith. Jephthah makes a rash vow, and God lists him in the hall of faith. Also of David and Samuel and the prophets. David killed Goliath, God's protection from Saul, but also adultery and murder. But here in the hero of faith, God only lists his strengths and puts David down as an example of faith. Samuel, a tremendous man of faith, and the prophets as well. So now we get listed some of the things that the prophets did through faith. And through faith, subdued kingdoms, worked righteousness, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions. Come on! Who stopped the mouths of lions? God did through the faith of Daniel. So this gives us a greater indication of Daniel as he was thrown into the lion's den. He's crying out to God going, God, these, these lions are nothing for you. You can close the mouth of the lions. I love reading these stories and taking these accounts in and reading them from God's perspective at face value because when you go back and you read Daniel, here comes the king who really didn't want to throw him in. He says, Daniel, did you, your God save you? And Daniel says, absolutely, my God saved me. So then they go get the guys that set up Daniel, that falsely accused Daniel, and they throw them into the lion's den. And the scripture says they were eaten before they even touched the ground right? Daniel was thrown in, and he asked God to close the mouth of the lions, and God did it, and God answered his prayer, but then these unbelieving men were thrown in, and they were devoured before they even hit the ground. Quench the violence of fire, escape the edge of the sword, out of weakness were made strong. I love that. They were made strong out of what? Out of weakness. So in this cloud of witnesses, we see what was the source of their strength? It was God. Out of their weakness and brokenness, they relied upon the Lord. And they became valiant in battle. 
turned to flight the armies of the aliens. They quenched the violence of fire. Reminds me of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Thrown into the fiery furnace, but not even a hair on their head was burned. Women received their dead, raised to life again. In 1 Kings 17, 74, we have the widow of Zarephath, who Elijah raised her son from the dead. From verse 33 through the beginning of verse 35, it's victory over circumstance, meaning God changes the circumstance. It's those times in our lives where God provides for the car to be fixed. God provides the job. God maybe provides healing from, from sickness. Victory over the circumstance. But the rest of verse 35 going on is it's victory under the circumstance. There's sometimes that God doesn't change the circumstance and in fact we're martyred. And to continue to have trust in God when the circumstance doesn't change. Goes on to say others were tortured, not accepting deliverance that they may obtain a better resurrection. Some were martyred. He said there's, there's no way I'm going to recant my faith. I'm going to trust fully in the Lord. God didn't deliver them in that sense. God chose for that to be the moment where they got to go home to be with the Lord. Still others had trials of mockings and scourgings, yes, and of chains and imprisonments. They were stoned. They were sawn in two, were tempted, were slain with the sword. Sometimes we don't understand how brutally the prophets were, were treated. Reliable Tradition and history tells us that Isaiah the prophet was slain, was, was sawn, excuse me, in two. Don't you love the writings of Isaiah? Man, they're so good. And yet, it seems that he was martyred, that he was cut in two. Jesus talks of a prophet named Zechariah who was stoned between the altar. Verse 37 talks of uh, prophets who were who were stoned. We know in Elijah's day from 1 Kings 18 and 19 that there were many prophets who were slain by the sword. And God remembers their lives and remembers this, the sacrifice that they made. They wandered about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, and tormented, of whom the world was not worthy. What a great compliment from God. The world was not worthy of these people. They wandered in deserts, Mountains and dens and caves of the earth. David and Elijah were forced to live in caves. In verse 39, And all these, having attained a good testimony through faith, did not receive the promise. <laughs> so they lived their lives through faith. We're being exhorted to live our lives through faith. And notice it said they hadn't yet received the promise. The Messiah hadn't come. They were looking forward to the coming of Jesus Christ. God having provided something better for us, that they should not be made perfect apart from us. Perfect is completed. And they're completed at the finished work of the cross. What's something better? It's the new covenant of God's grace, of our sins being forgiven. Now for fun, let's look at where we're going next week. So we've read all of this of Hebrews 11. Therefore, chapter 12, verse 1, we also, since we're surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and sin which so easily ensnares us and let us run, let us run with endurance the race that's set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith, 
who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Our faith, the just shall live by faith. The evidence of things unseen, the substance of things, things hoped for. What does God's word say? When we look at these examples of faith, they were responding to what God had spoken to them. So, so what does God's word say? And then, do I believe it? You know? Do, do, I, do I believe what God's word says? And then, do we obey it? So what does it say? Do we believe it? And then, do we obey it? Because when we approach God's word with faith, oh God, this is God's word. I believe that this is God's word then it'll move us to the place of saying, I want to obey God's word. I want to live by faith. I'm trusting God. I'm trusting that God, you have breathed this word into existence. This is, this is your love letter. This is your command. And so now I'm going to step out in faith and trust your power and your ability to be able to live the word. Abraham was tested. What was most important was in God's hands. God tested Abraham, he'll test us as well. And have we placed everything upon the altar? Jacob's on his staff worshiping. And has God made you limp? Has God broken you? Has he broken me? Instead of getting angry or bitter, go, I'm so thankful for this limp. I'm so thankful for this weakness in my life. And I'm so thankful that God loved me enough to humble me and teach me a lesson. And I'm just gonna lean right here on this staff in worship. Joseph knew that they would depart, and he, he spoke those words in faith. There are kids and those around us, do they, do they have the sense that we know we're gonna depart, that this world's not our home, and we're giving instructions in that regard? Moses chose suffering. Moses chose to associate with the people of God. And Joshua and the gang, they accepted God's promises on the walls that were in front of them. And they walked around the walls and they shouted and God brought a great victory. We're left with this simple exhortation from Proverbs 3, 5. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understandings. In all your ways, acknowledge him and he'll make your path straight. So let's pray together. Father, as we look at this great cloud of witnesses, we're encouraged we know from the Old Testament their failures, their shortcomings, their weakness. But yet in the new covenant of the blood of Jesus, we see how you shined through their lives and they trusted you and they walked with you. And Lord, we ask that you would build us up in faith. And where our faith is weak, that you'd make it strong. And Lord, would you help our unbelief? We also know that faith comes through hearing the word. And would you awaken in us a a greater desire to hear your word. And Abraham and Moses, they, they had a fresh vision of who you are. They saw you and understood your character and then that moved them to a life of faith and a life of trust. So would you give us greater vision of, of who you are in our lives? Would you meet us afresh in communion? Lord, and we want to come to that place tonight of laying down every sin, and every weight that's slowing us down in this race, to look to you, 
to look to you as our crucified Savior who's risen, surrender afresh to you. So we invite you into this time of communion in Jesus' name. Amen.